Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the wetlands bill that has moved to the Indiana House of Representatives. That's coming up later in the program, but now for your environmental headlines. A division of Duke Energy has developed renewable energy projects plans to build a $180 million solar farm in western Indiana that would produce enough electricity to power 35,000 homes. The Hoosier Jack Solar Farm, proposed by Duke Energy Renewable Solar LLC, a division of Duke Energy that's not overseen by state regulators, would be located in southern Vigo County and northern Sullivan County. The project, which would be on leased lands, would span 1,500 acres, including 896 acres in Vigo County and 604 acres in Sullivan County, and would be located on a reclaimed coal strip mine currently being used for crops. The site is linked to a 138-kilovolt Duke Energy Indiana transmission line through a utility-owned interconnection switching station near Farmersburg, the Tribune Star reported. Representatives of Duke Energy Renewable Solar went before the Vigo County Council last week to request a 10-year tax abatement on property and a 10-year tax abatement on personal property of $100 million for the portion of the farm that will be in Vigo County. The county council is scheduled to vote soon on the matter. A group of Indiana high school students is turning climate crisis awareness into action. Shortridge High School in Indianapolis could become the first in the state to declare climate change an emergency. About a dozen schools in other states have adopted climate emergency resolutions. Students in the school's diplomatic corps are working with Earth Charter Indiana on a climate emergency declaration. Lizzie Perkins, a junior, has been leading the charge. She said, quote, Climate change is an emergency, and there's not a whole lot being done about this thing that is such a huge issue and has such a huge impact on every single person on the planet. If we're going to do anything about it, I realized that we were going to have to take action as students, end quote. The goal is to have the principal sign the declaration on Earth Day, April 22nd. The student government adopted the resolution, and over 40 students have signed it. Perkins said it needs to be a whole school effort. Social studies teacher Troy Hammond said students understand that it's time to act and stop debating whether the climate crisis is real. He noted, quote, We've encouraged that at first, that whole debate part. 
Now it's time to start debating what we do to prepare and or at least slow down the human's impact of it, end quote. A story in USA Today reports the COVID-19 pandemic did nothing to slow the root cause of global warming. In fact, the level of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere is now higher than it has been in at least 3.6 million years, federal scientists announced last week. At that time, sea levels were as much as 78 feet higher. The average temperature was 7 degrees Fahrenheit higher than in pre-industrial times. Greenland was mostly green, and Antarctica had trees. The higher latitudes began to cool during the Pliocene era because of the closure of the Panama Seaway, which altered the ocean circulation. Cooling was also caused by a rising of the Rocky Mountains and changes in the axial tilt of the Earth. The CO2 level was around 400 parts per million at the time. Overall, levels of carbon dioxide and methane, the two most important greenhouse gases, continued their unrelenting rise in 2020 despite the economic slowdown caused by the pandemic, according to scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA attributes human activity for driving climate change. To avoid the worst impacts, it's going to take a deliberate focus on reducing fossil fuel emissions to near zero. The burning of fossil fuels such as coal, oil, and gas releases greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and methane, which has caused the temperature of Earth's atmosphere to rise to levels that cannot be explained by natural causes, scientists say. Since pre-industrial times, the world's temperature has risen about 1.1 degree. Amazon, the nation's second largest private employer and one of the world's largest retails, contributes a tremendous amount of single-use plastic waste to rivers, lakes, and oceans. The amount of plastic is equivalent to dumping one delivery van of plastic into a waterway every 70 minutes. Plastics that people use for a few seconds can take hundreds of years to decompose in the ocean and pose lethal threats to marine life. Flexible plastic packaging is one of the deadliest forms of plastic pollution for marine animals because it can crumple up in their digestive tracts. When swallowed, that packaging can kill whales, dolphins, and sea turtles, among other animals. Amazon uses flexible bubble mailers and air pillows in packaging its products. According to one study, Amazon's plastic waste in air pillows alone could circle the globe 500 times. Amazon claims it used 116 million pounds of plastic in 2019, but studies estimate more. Because Amazon is responsible for so much plastic waste globally, its decisions to stop using single-use plastic packaging would have a huge impact on plastic pollution and would set an example for other companies to follow. Wildfires in the U.S. aren't confined to the West. They're occurring now in the Midwest, and Indiana is no exception. Recently, a wildfire burned over 300 acres at the Indiana Dunes National Park in the northwestern section of the state. The wildfire occurred in Miller Woods in Gary and was put out the next evening. The cause is under investigation. 
Someone notified the Park Service of the wildfire while tending a prescribed fire, according to park officials. A National Park spokesperson said there were no reports of injuries or damage to private property. Park officials released a satellite photo revealing that the smoke from the wildfire extended eight miles north onto Lake Michigan. The Indiana Dunes National Park comprises 15 miles of Lake Michigan shoreline and 15,000 acres of beaches, woods, prairies, and marshes. Authorities scheduled four prescribed burns at the park for this spring, totaling over 900 acres. Officials said prescribed fires helped to restore the park. PV Magazine reports the latest efforts to limit solar power. A coalition of solar, environmental, and consumer advocates condemned a recent decision by Indiana utility regulators that will considerably set back the rooftop solar market in southwest Indiana. The Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission delivered a final order that reduces the credit received by future solar owners served by Centerpoint Energy Unit of Vectran South. The decision also changed the period for earning credits so that more customer-owned solar generation is credited at the new lower rate. The green energy groups called the ruling a dramatic setback for customer-owned solar and the utility service territory. They said it would solidify the utility's monopoly stranghold on captive consumers. One solar installer told regulators that Vectran South's proposal would cut the net metering rate of 14.3 cents for residential customers and 9.3 cents per kilowatt hour for commercial customers to about 3.1 cents per kilowatt hour. He said that the utility's proposed instantaneous netting methodology would drastically reduce or dry up his company's business and that the proposal would more than triple the expected consumer payback period from 7 to 10 years to about 25 years. In its ruling, the commission said it found no support for continuing what it said was subsidization by non-solar customers of solar customers' system payback periods. The utility testified that the cost to manage distributed generation customers from interconnection evaluation to billing are greater than those for other customers. Similarly, the utility's witness testified that outflow produced by customer-owned resources does not reduce power plant distribution or transmission system costs. No comments were made regarding the subsidies given to coal or gas interests. The Commission said that distributed generation customers could install a commercially available battery to make greater use of their solar system's production. It acknowledged that such technology is expensive and may lengthen a solar system's payback period. However, it ruled that a longer payback period does not require Vectran South to continue allowing customers that own distributed generation resources to use the grid as their battery. On April 9th, the Biden administration announced that it would not take immediate action to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline while the government conducts a court-ordered environmental review. Since 2017, the controversial pipeline has been illegally transporting toxic crude oil near the Standing Rock Sioux Tribes Reservation. 
Though President Biden has stated his commitment to improving tribal consultation and taking bold action to tackle the climate crisis, the stance his administration took on the 9th is identical to the Trump administration's. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has announced that it will allow oil to continue flowing through the tribe's ancestral land and water supply. The pipeline will continue to move 600,000 barrels of crude oil per day, a half a mile up the Missouri River from the Standing Rock Reservation. A pipeline spill would contaminate the drinking water of the tribe and millions of other people downstream. The tribe has been seeking an injunction from the court to halt the pipeline's operation until the environmental review is complete. In July 2020, a D.C. Court of Appeals agreed that the Army Corps failed to consider the health and environmental impact of the pipeline, but placed responsibility for shutting it down on the agency. This January, the U.S. Court of Appeals upheld a lower court's ruling that the Army Corps unlawfully issued the pipeline water-crossing permit, but deferred to the new administration to decide whether to shut down the pipeline or ignore its legal obligation and allow it to continue operating. The next step is for the Army Corps to conduct an environmental and safety review to determine whether the pipeline poses a threat to the tribe. Once the review is complete, the agency will decide if the pipeline is safe to operate or must be shut down permanently. A new DeSmog study found that a majority of directors of major banks are connected globally to polluting companies and organizations. DeSmog found that 77% of the board members of seven major U.S. banks have ties to climate disrupting companies or groups. Among all the banks studied, 14% of board members had ties to companies involved in extracting coal, gas, and oil. As Alec Conan, coalition coordinator at Stop the Money Pipeline, put it, quote, Since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, Chase Bank, Wells Fargo Bank, and their Wall Street ilk have loaned more than $1 trillion to the fossil fuel industry. In the climate crisis, Wall Street is a primary villain. End quote. Recently, 145 organizations sent President Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, a letter urging him to use his position to end, quote, the flow of private finance from Wall Street to the industries driving climate change around the world, fossil fuels and forest risk commodities, end quote. The Center for Biodiversity and Allies went to court to save thousands of sea turtles from drowning in shrimp nets. Represented by Earth Justice, they sued the National Marine Fisheries Service over a Trump-era rule that would let certain shrimpers dodge a requirement to use turtle excluder devices, or TEDs, in the Gulf of Mexico and the South Atlantic. The rule would result in an estimated 1,300 preventable turtle deaths every year, more than doubling the number, including deaths of endangered species like leatherback turtles. Quote, Turtle excluder devices are a proven way to prevent sea turtles from needlessly drowning in shrimp trawls, end quote, said the center's Jacqueline Lopez. They also keep other wildlife from getting caught accidentally in the nets. 
A TED is a specialized device that allows a captured sea turtle to escape when caught in a fisherman's net. In particular, sea turtles can be caught when bottom trawling is used by the commercial shrimp fishing industry. In order to catch shrimp, a finely meshed trawl net is needed. This results in large amounts of other marine organisms also being caught as bycatch. When the contents of a shrimp net are dumped on the deck for sorting, the shrimp content typically is about 10%. When a turtle gets caught or entangled in a trawl net, it becomes trapped and is unable to return to the surface. Thus, they eventually drown. In 1987, the U.S. required all trawling shipping boats to equip their nets with TEDs. In 1989, a shrimp turtle law was passed. This required all countries that the U.S. was importing shrimp from to certify that the shrimp they shipped were harvested by boats equipped with TEDs. Countries that cannot guarantee the use of the escape devices were banned from exporting shrimp to the U.S. It is difficult to enforce TED compliance since TEDs can reduce the efficiency of the net system, resulting in a loss of some catch. This creates an incentive for the trawler to cheat. The catch loss can be eliminated by simply tying the turtle escape opening shut with a tie. The tie is removed when the vessel returns to port, thus avoiding detection by enforcement officers. In the Atlantic, the loggerhead sea turtle and green sea turtle are listed as threatened. The leatherback, hawksbill, and Kemp's Ridley sea turtle species are listed as endangered everywhere. And now for our feature, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the wetlands bill that has moved to the Indiana House. A bill seeking to revoke all state protections for Indiana wetlands has been significantly reduced in scope by the House Environmental Affairs Committee. In its original language, Senate Bill 389 sought the repeal of all state wetland protections and permitting authorized by the Indiana legislature in 2003. This is how Senator Chris Garten, one of the bill's authors, characterized the bill. To be crystal clear and a little redundant, this bill does not conflict at all in any way or interfere with any federal regulation, any federal rule, any federal program, and again has zero effect on water quality in the state of Indiana. Senate Bill 389 is an effort to question why Indiana is more restrictive than 42 other states. It is an opportunity to bring to the forefront maybe a few folks misbehaving within the agency who are oppressing and threatening Hoosiers under the guise of a wetlands code. This bill is a chance for us to vet a government program that defines a wetland so broad and so ambiguous that literally the vast majority of ground in the state of Indiana can be defined as a wetland. Environmental organizations, water management organizations, and even the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and Department of Natural Resources opposed the bill. Even so, the bill, with language that would strip all state protections, passed the Senate. The bill made its way to the House Environmental Affairs Committee, which unanimously passed an amendment that preserves state protections of most wetlands and adds more exemptions for croplands, the permitting of which has often been cited by bill proponents as the main justification for the bill. Here's Representative Hal Slager, who introduced the amendment. 
What we've done in Amendment 24 fundamentally is to not exclude any classes of wetlands from permitting or mitigation, but rather to exclude certain types of uh, situations we've run into from being considered a wetland. In particular, referring to cropland, which is a farmland, but further defined. Uh, that was in Amendment 19. That's, that continues on. Just to take that out from consideration with certain parameters so that we're not running askew with the, uh, the federal environmental folks. And the other thing that we did was to exclude an ephemeral stream from being considered a wetland. That's a, a temporary stream from runoff of rain and, and um, we were having some problems there. So rather than trying to take uh, a meat cleaver to this, we were a little more surgical and prescriptive in, in, in just trying to identify the problem and working within that. The amendment would remove the last remaining legal protection in the state for ephemeral streams or streams that flow only during and after rainfall and snowmelt. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management in September said it would not consider ephemeral streams as part of its Federal Clean Water Act water quality certification. IDEM Commissioner Bruno Pigott said the decision was due to the Trump administration narrowing the list of waters protected by federal regulations in 2020. The amendment would also reduce the mitigation ratios associated with wetland permitting activities. Landowners who choose to develop wetlands but are not exempt from the law through numerous codified exemptions have to replace the wetlands they disturb or pay the Indiana Department of Natural Resources to do so through an in-lieu fee program, the rates of which are determined by the class of wetland being mitigated. The bill also reduces the amount of time IDEM has to issue a wetland permit and encourages the legislature to assign an interim study committee to study the maintenance and management of wetlands in Indiana. Slager said the amendment was a prudent alternative to the original language of the bill. I understand that there may be a few little tweaks that we want to do as it relates to, for instance, uh, cumulative uh, issues. I think that needs a little deeper dive. In fact, a lot of this needs a little deeper dive, so we've also included some language to take this beyond this to a, a, a legislative study to see what else we might do. But rather than risking going too far, it is my opinion, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but my opinion, this is a prudent way to go forward. The bill will now be heard by the full House of Representatives this week. The Hoosier Environmental Council has advised its members to support the bill with the current amendment but to not support any future amendments if they seek to further weaken state protections for wetlands. The HEC last week, along with dozens of other organizations and several city governments, sent letters to legislators asking them to consider policy changes instead of supporting SB 389. We'll continue tracking this story. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. McCormick's Creek State Park is hosting a wildflower weekend on Friday, April 16th through Sunday, April 18th, with events scheduled for each day. The event kickoff takes place from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on Friday with a special tour of the My Path Trail. 
On Saturday at 8 a.m., there will be a morning hike to the Echo Canyon Natural Area. Then a native plant sale will take place from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Nature Center. A Wolf Cave hike will take place at 10 a.m. with many more demonstrations and activities throughout the day as well as on Sunday. The Central Indiana Land Trust has created a Take Our Trails Challenge, a program designed to motivate people to get outside and enjoy nature and learn about the five nature preserves overseen by the Central Indiana Land Trust. The five trails include Laura Hare Preserve at Blossom Hollow, Burnett Woods, Fred and Dorothy Meyer Nature Preserve, Meltzer Woods, and Noni Werby Krause Nature Preserve. The challenge begins now and ends on November 26th. You have plenty of time. To take part, take a photo of yourself at the trailhead and email your photos to smiller at conservingindiana.org. The Hoosier Environmental Council is sponsoring a free Earth Day online event on Thursday, April 22nd at noon. The Earth Day Roundtable will be discussing the Biden EPA, environmental justice, and climate action. You will hear from current and retired EPA officials. To sign up, go to the Hoosier Environmental Council website. McCormick's Creek State Park is hosting its annual Spring 5K Run Walk on Saturday, April 24th, with an 8.30 a.m. start time. The race route winds through much of the park on paved roads, so it allows social distancing. Registration is limited and must be done at bit.ly slash 31G4ICL by Friday, April 16th. The 5K helps fund family-friendly projects and programs at McCormick's Creek State Park and YMCA scholarships. For more information, contact Williams at 821-829-4344 or wwilliams at dnr.in.gov. Enjoy a wildflower foray on Friday, April 23rd at Brown County State Park. Celebrate spring wildflowers popping up all over Brown County and come see what is blooming and learn about the different flowers. For more information, go to phaulter at dnr.in.gov or call 812-988-5240. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 334 4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. 
For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.